All right. Um, so I was going to go right into the material, but it sounds like we have Fahim and Pedro here. We could probably just start with the update on the bottom Unity Alliance, which I've got some notes for that as well. Um, I guess, uh, Fahim, uh, how's it going? Good. How are you? Doing pretty great. Uh, I listened to Andrew and your podcast uh, that took place after mine. Nice. Oh, Andrew didn't get the invite. I see Andrew here. Hold on. Yeah, it took a few seconds uh, for it to pop for me also. Well, there's Andrew, so. Cool. Um, yeah, I really appreciated uh, what y'all had to say. Um, I I definitely think there's a lot of uh, crossover between our two movements right now as like a trying to stop World War Three. Uh, obviously, the 100%. obvious stuff. I mean, uh, stopping World War III, uh, the drug policy, uh, agree with you on the defund the police stuff uh, for sure. I mean, the uh, libertarian movement has been very, when I say, uh, anti the praetorians of the political guard, I guess you'd say, for a long time. Um, the only issue we had with the defund the police movement is replace it with what, I guess. I think we would need to have a really increased uh, – Agreement on the right to self-defense and uh, the right to bear arms in order for your own defense. And we need to have like increased like private security, I think, in order to supplement those things. Yeah, and, and many of those uh, things, uh, I uh, even though a lot of my leanings are on the left side, but uh, when it comes to the two-way thing, uh, I am very, very for it. Uh, and uh, so uh, I totally get uh, uh, that. And as I, I said, if we start getting into the uh, nitty gritty and the weeds uh, and just uh, forget the uh, forest for the trees, then uh, we're basically going to be <laughs> chasing our tails forever. So Great. And actually, sorry, before we get too into this, I broke my own first rule. Um, so I am Peter Panarchy. I am an organizer for the Oregon Mises Caucus. I'm the vice chair for the Oregon Public Policy Board of the Libertarian Party. I'm happy to be joined here in the second episode of Foreign Policy Fridays. Um, we're going to be talking about the anti-war movement for uh, bottom unity between the lower right and the lower left. We're also be talking about the leadings up to World War One, specifically the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and the secret English and French alliance that I think was a major cause of World War One. So with that out of the way, um, I guess the, the only other topic I had on um, the bottom unity movement is we are all aware of the political compass, I would guess, right? And I don't mean to mischaracterize uh, your all's group, uh, but I find myself on the lower right of that compass, meaning I'm an extreme anti-authoritarian and an extreme individualist. And would I, would I be right to say that you you all would find yourselves on more the lower left side of that? Or could you please specify your position there? Looks like Fahim dropped off uh, Andrew or, or Pedro. Uh, I can't hear you, Andrew. It seems it seems uh, you have some problems. I can I can go ahead. 
so t uh, first, thank you for the invite, Peter. Uh, I can tell you where I'm coming from. So uh, I was born in Portugal, but uh, I've been living in the United States uh, now. Uh, I'm not a partisan person. I'm not uh, kind of uh, aligned with any party. I pick issues here and there. I like uh, the Libertarian Party on some issues. I'm a, a big fan of Justin Amash. Uh, he actually has a, a show here on Colleen. I talked with him a couple of times. Uh, we talked about the U.S. Constitution and uh, uh, I made some interesting conversations with him. But... Uh, you can define me as a independent politically. Uh, I agree with your platform of anti-war, of uh, uh, advocating for the the Australian journalist Julian Assange. And uh, but I actually know very little about your platform. Uh, I just came here because you invited me and uh, then I invited Andrew and Fahim and I hope they can come back and contribute because I really am not that knowledgeable about, uh, about this issue. So that's my, my take for now. Uh, I'll, uh, I will be happy to, I'm not going to, to talk about World War One because I'm not, uh, I really don't know almost anything, but if I see any question relevant, I will interrupt. Uh, so that's pretty much what I have to say for now. Can you hear me? Uh, yep, I can hear you. And uh, thank you, Pedro. Okay, good stuff. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut off Pedro. I just um, was worried I was having the same problem as before. So first of all, the uh, bird in my picture, I just changed it yesterday for fun, but I did take this picture pretty close to Bend, Oregon. Um, so big uh yeah i'm a big um cascadia guy i guess in some ways i would like to see um you know a, eventually uh autonomous region that is built around the geographic and hydrologic and an ecological um boundaries that make much more sense than just a straight line um so if that gives you some type of idea about my politics um then good. Uh, but I, I don't think that I'm necessarily like all the way bottom left on the political compass. I don't really know. I, I have, you know, taken the quiz before. Not really sure how worthwhile it is just given on what the questions are and how few or many there are. But I would say that um, for today, I'm most interested in talking about a, a limited coalition for um, the stated goals of this uh, Rage Against the War Machine protest, because I think that uh, we're pretty pretty much all heavily in agreement with those 10 demands. Um, and I, I'm kind of viewing it like risk, like, you know, we're kind of losing right now. So we're going to make a team up and then later we can go um, fight with each other over, you know, for instance, why I think private security is a really terrible answer to police abolition, but that's down the road. I think for now we should focus on strategy for the anti-war coalition. Um yeah, I'll just pause for there and let everyone else. Uh... Yeah, definitely appreciate it, Andrew. I, I would love to have a, a separate podcast uh, uh, just so we can talk about uh, those issues specifically. I was just uh, listening to your podcast before this one, and I was just I, I agree with everything you were mostly saying about uh, corporate 
like, uh, especially Amazon and Boeing. I think we just have a lot more crossover than uh, maybe a lot of people think that we do. Like, uh, I won't speak from our entire organization, but most of us see corporations as the fourth branch of government, and we hate corporate welfare, and we view like Lockheed Martin and Boeing with the same hatred that we view Pfizer and Moderna, I guess. So I appreciate that. But yeah, let's uh, let's schedule something to talk about that. Um, I think we're, let's maybe get to the topic at hand. Uh, unless Fahim, you want to introduce yourself before we get into the Franco-Prussian War. Sure. I'm uh, Fahim, living in Southern California, uh, moved uh, to the, or immigrated to the U.S. in 94 from Pakistan. Uh, grew up during uh, the whole uh, Soviet-Afghanistan war, which we uh, funded the guys who later on came around to bite, on, uh, bite our ass. And then we spend it, uh, and then we ended up spending uh, 20 years uh, uh, just uh, flushing money uh, down the drain. So for me, uh, I would uh, classify myself more as an independent. I have things that connect me to uh, issues on the left, uh, as well as uh, uh, issues that are important to what's classified as folks from the uh, right. Uh, my first uh, political uh, awakening uh, was, uh, believe it or not, by Ron Paul. And uh, then after that, uh, it was, uh, there was stuff that came out from uh, Bernie. Um, a huge fan of uh, one of your uh, godfathers of the Libertarian Institute, Scott Harden, listened to him religiously. So, yeah, let's get this thing going. Hell yeah. I uh, appreciate that. And certainly, uh, last but certainly not least, uh, my co-organizer for the Mises Caucus, uh, Risto, is here. If you want to introduce yourself as well. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, I think uh, today I'm mostly just going to be riding shotgun with uh, Peter taking the lead. Um, uh, just a little about me. I'm I'm also an organizer for the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party of Oregon. Uh, I volunteer in the Multnomah County uh, Libertarians, uh, mostly by hosting uh, informal get-togethers and uh, helping out with uh, our Twitter and things like that. And it's nice to meet you all. Right. So oh, to get into the material here, recap the uh, first episode. Um, so the common theme of this series is that as a libertarian, we should realize that nearly every actor on both sides of every conflict is a state. States are evil organizations that seek to enrich their own wealth and power with no regard for the cannon fodder that fight their wars. So in the last episode, we talked about how there are a lot of general parallels between World War One, especially the things leading up to it, and the Ukraine-Russia conflict that seems to be, if we don't stop it, rapidly evolving into World War Three. So last night I watched the movie Threads from 1984. I don't know if anyone's seen it. So I'm a cultish fan of horror movies, but I have to say this one really scared me. It's just the disregard for how serious the situation was. I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's based on uh, there's a conflict going on in the Middle East and Iran. Uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States. And everyone's pretending like, oh, this is a really a big deal. It's not going to happen. What are we going to do about it? And there's people calling 
people just seditionists and just anti-patriotic for like questioning the motives of what's happening. And it was, uh, yeah, watch it, I guess. And uh, spoiler alert, um, there's a nuclear war and most everybody dies. But okay, so on to the Franco-Prussian War, which uh, I think is a really big deal when it comes to what led up to World War One. So it resulted in the formation of Germany in 1871. Uh, so the basics, I'm sure that probably Andrew knows more about this than I do, but France uh, could tell that the German states were gaining power. Uh, Leopold of, I pronounced this wrong, Hohenzollern, uh, was potentially going to be the king of Spain, and there was going to be a French-Spanish alliance, or a, sorry, a German-Spanish alliance with the French were not happy about. So France was being ruled at the time by the third, who wanted to expand the French empire back to the Rhine again. I think we could probably call this a draw on who actually caused the war. Uh, Otto von Bismarck edited a telegram between the German king and the French ambassador, and he made it look like both sides had insulted each other. And I'm just going to read like the translation of this telegram real quick, because I think it really just shows like how dumb this war was. Uh, so it says, uh, Count Bedidi intercepted me on the promenade to demand of me, finally, in an opportune manner, that I should authorize him to telegraph at once that I bound myself in perpetuity, never again to give my consent. The Hohenzorns renew their candidature, uh, speaking about the, the Spanish monarchy, which this guy was a, a German prince. Uh, and again, they, the French really didn't want this German prince to become the king of Spain. So I rejected this demand somewhat sternly as it neither right nor possible to undertake engagements of this kind. Naturally, I told him I had not received any news, and since it is earlier informed concerning Paris and Madrid than I was, he must surely say that the government was not concerned in any manner. So I guess the French translation by the agency did not translate the German word, adjacent, which refers to a high-ranking um, aide in camp, but in French, it describes a non-commissioned officer, which implied the king had deliberately insulted the ambassador, by not choosing an officer to carry the message to, to him. That was a, the version printed by new, most newspapers in the following day, which happened to be on Bastille Day, July 14, setting the tone, letting the French believe the king had insulted their ambassador before the latter could tell the story. So I guess the war was started on false pretenses, but it was Napoleon III that took issue with this and declared a brutal war over perceived insult. I think we should just be reminded of just how callous and evil these people are. Uh, that run states that, yeah, I mean, it looks like, according to my research, about 200,000 people died and a total about nearly a million casualties over what seems just like an insult. So I guess just a brief overview of the war. Uh, the Prussians used their advanced railroad system to bring the troops to the front and then they, outnumbering the fret, they ended up outnumbering the French nearly two to one. Napoleon III was captured in battle was forced to surrender. The French Republicans took advantage of the situation of Napoleon III being captured, and they established the Third Republic uh, in the revolution. So then the Prussians fought all the way to Paris. They forced the Republic to surrender. And the war ended with the Treaty of Frankfurt in 1871, which saw Alsace and Lorraine become territory of the newly formed German Empire. So I'm going to open up to comments here in a second, but I don't really know how much we can learn from this in regards to preventing World War III, besides the obvious fact that the people that run governments tend to be very evil and vindictive. 
but Alsace and Lorraine became a huge cause of World War I later on. The French desperately wanted this territory back because of its rich coal deposits and other natural resources. The French seemed to be willing to do basically anything to get it back, including entering a secret military alliance with their historical arch rival, England. Uh, any comments on the Franco-Prussian War and how it caused World War I? Not right now on my end. What I'm more interested in is how the U.S. government uh, lied its own people into uh, getting into World War One because that is where uh, I think uh, we can uh, talk more about like, hey, guys, let's be aware. It's uh, all governments lie. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a whole episode about the Lusitania, about like the high seas fleet and all of that. Go ahead, Risto. Uh, one thing that stands out to me, I mean, uh, it, it's silly and even like kind of cartoonish uh, the way that a uh, neglecting to translate a single word leads to a perceived insult that, that starts a war. But that actually seems very much in line with uh, what we seem to see happening a lot in uh, the news cycle right now, where Russia says something, the United States says something, and uh, each side, at least when you catch uh, what purports to be the accurate translations, uh, don't seem to accurately catch what the original side was actually saying. And so there's a lot of manipulation of the narrative. And so we're seeing that that's just not something new. No, I think that's true. And it made me think when I was reading this, um, Vladimir Putin is a very evil man. He's done very awful things. I'm really glad that he doesn't have the temperament of Napoleon III. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. Uh, callers, any opinions on the Franco-Prussian War before we uh, move on to the relationship between England and France? Sounds like nobody. So I actually prepared, I wanted to prepare a bunch of different topics for this, but as I should have realized, uh, this takes a lot of research and time to prepare. So uh, we're really only going to talk about the relationship between England and France, and then I guess maybe dip a little bit into the relationship between England and Germany. But uh, I'll probably just dig into that in the uh, the next episode there. But to so... For now, we're going to discuss some of the relationships between the major powers that were involved in World War One in a somewhat non-linear fashion, just to show like just these entangling alliances, like all the mistakes that were made and kind of how they led to this, as I said in the last episode, what really felt like a freight train that just had way too much freight on it that everyone was trying to stop before. Like the, At a certain point, there was just everyone felt like kind of powerless to prevent this uh, World War One that happened, so... All right, so start with the Entente Cordiale of England and France. And I think perhaps the comparison here is going to be Russia and China, but we'll probably get into that a little bit later. But in 1904, uh, England and France shocked everyone by entering a public cordial understanding. So France renounced any claims to Egypt, and England recognized France as the predominant power in Morocco. And I guess I should stop here and just say this sounds pretty, I guess, fucked in modern times that people are just uh, using these different colonies as pawns. Like these people are people. Uh, we'll talk about this later, but 
I don't know the casualty count, but the people living in the colonies between these major powers in World War I uh, died by the hundreds of thousands, maybe the millions, over a conflict that they really had nothing to do with at all. Um, but I guess, uh, so that was public, like the Entente Cordiale. Uh, this leads us to who I would argue is the Englishman second most responsible for World War I, which would be Sir Edward Grey. Uh, he was the Foreign Secretary of Britain between 1905 and 1916. Uh, the Englishman first most responsible would, of course, be Winston Churchill, who I think was the most overrated person of the 20th century, which we'll have a totally different episode about. But as far as Sir Edward Grey... Uh, this man uh, and a few committed an egregious act by acting on their own uh, to commit England to war. I guess to quote um, from Pat Buchanan's Unnecessary War, which I've used as a, a source document for, among other things, in the series. So this is Buchanan writing, completely unknown to the cabinet and parliament, a tiny cabal had made a decision fateful for Britain, the empire, and the world. Under the guidance of Edward Grey, British and French officers plotted Britain's entry into the Franco-German War from the first shot. These secret war plans were being formulated by the Liberal Party at the time, which was voted into power in public revulsion against the Boer Wars, which they, they, they got voted in a, a platform of peace, retrenchment, and reform. So I guess Buchanan quotes a historian Robert Massey here uh, talking about uh, Gray and his uh, secret war aims. On January 16, 1906, without the approval of either the prime minister or the cabinet, secret talks between the British and the French staff officers began. They focused on plans to send 100,000 British soldiers into the continent within two weeks within an outbreak of hostility. Within half a year of coming into office, Gray had presided over the transformation of the Entente with France, which had begun life as an attempt to settle extra-European quarrels and ended in a de facto defensive military alliance. So just to round the circle on that, uh, Prime Minister at the time, uh, Campbell, in 1906, and his successor, Asquith, had approved of the military staff talks, but neither the cabinet nor the parliament was aware that Gray had actually committed Britain to war. Uh, this was no doubt a conspiracy against both the British government, but also, of course, the people of Britain at large. It is no doubt that the secret arrangement gave France the assurances it needed to become more aggressive in its posturing towards Germany, unbeknownst to Germany, of course, or anyone else. So I'll pause here for comments on how this uh, secret French and English military alliance kind of led to the war here, and happy to take uh, any callers as well. Peter, not uh, I don't have a comment directly related to your uh, statement, but uh, since the issue is World War One, uh, I would like to uh, have like five minutes of the floor to do to talk about uh, a law that uh, Justin Amash, Justin Amash for for who, for the ones who doesn't know, is a libertarian. He was a, an elected member of Congress. Uh, but he's on Twitter a lot, and I follow him on Twitter. So, with, uh, if it's okay with you, Peter, I would like like five minutes to talk about Justin Amash and some a law called the Espionage Act that was made in World War Two. Sure, go ahead. Um, I, I'll just briefly say that I know Justin Amash. I met him personally. Um, I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
before I moved to uh, Oregon, which is uh, where Amash was a congressman uh, back when he was a Republican before he changed to the Libertarian Party. I think he's a great person. Um, I disagree with him on certain uh, directions, I guess, on the Libertarian Party in general. But I agree with a lot of his views, including this one you're about to talk about. Yes. Uh, so uh, I'm, uh, I actually uh, uh, had a, a kind of a long thread because Justin tweeted about this. So I think everybody knows that Donald Trump, the ex-president, was uh, charged with the Espionage Act for having classified documentation in his house. And Justin tweeted, I'm going to read the Justin's tweet and then I'm going to comment on what I had to, to do in reply. Uh, Justin said, the fact that the, that the Espionage Act may be used against Trump does not magically make it good. It has a terrible history of abuse. Gover government has employed it to avoid scrutiny and chill free speech, and it violates basic tenets of due process. Nobody should be cheerleading this law. So let me explain uh, what the Espionage, Espionage Act came from. So uh, United States entered, entered World War I in the 1917, I believe, and uh, the the intent of the act was to dissent German spies, uh, but it actually uh, went a little further. And uh, some people say that the real intent it was to just to suppress the anti-war movement in the, in the United States, because uh, like Julian Assange says, uh, the, the people usually don't like wars. They have to be lied into going into wars. So they make this law which make, uh, which make it illegal to speak. And, and notice this, to speak against the war. And uh, my article was regarding the, the, the legendary socialist leader, Eugene Debs, that was arrested and uh, played uh, and uh, spent many years in prison because his crime was to make a speech in uh, Canton, Ohio in 1917. Uh, he just made a speech against the war and he was arrested uh, for that. Uh, so my reply to Justin was, uh, it's true that the Espionage Act was used in the past to punish free speech. In, 19, uh, in 1918, uh, the leader of the, of the Socialist Party, Eugene Debs, was arrested, charged, and convicted of sedition under the Espionage uh, Act because he made a speech urging resistance to the military draft of World War I. Sedition is uh, it's, it's actually in the law, right? Just by speaking against the war was a crime, and uh, that's basically my my res my response. And then I elaborated a little bit further. I talked about uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders in 1979 made a documentary about the life of Eugene Debs, and Bernie Sanders in 1979. Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, there is a party called Democrat Socialists of America. They did a, a video montage of Bernie Sanders uh, talking, uh, talking, the, talking Eugene Debs. He, he read out loud the, the Canton, Ohio uh, speech, which I recommend everybody to go 
and listen and read because it's uh, just a fascinating speech uh, urging uh, for the workers to unite against the war. And then I continue with that thread uh, with some extra articles and things. Uh, I said that the, the Espionage Act was originally intended co to combat actual German spies. Uh, but it had one section to that punish any dissent to to the war effort, including just talking about it. And then I I concluded my my thread, uh, mentioned the journalist uh, Jeremy Skyhill uh, from the newspaper The Intercept that also has a a big uh, proponent of uh, ending the Espionage Act. Uh, it's, uh, Okay, that's basically my my comment on this. Uh, glad Andrew is back. Uh, he had some tech issues. So, any comments on my my Eugene Debs espionage plugin? Feel free to comment anyone, and uh, that's all I have to say. Yeah, I would just say that uh, I think Eugene Debs was a, a great American. I think I disagree with him on obviously every probably domestic issue, but. He was really one of the only people willing to stand up on this issue uh, from the American side. And I think that took a lot of strength and he paid the ultimate price by spending most of the war in prison. So I think he was a, a great person. Um, he he actually uh, ran for president from prison. Um, yeah, no, I remember that. Yes, and he got uh, a huge percentage of the, the vote. In the beginning of the last century, the Socialist Party was huge in the Midwest specifically, but uh, as uh, after World War II, it kind of died slowly because the, the United States become a, a richer country. And in my mind, as uh, as richer... Oh, that's country, not... That's not true. That's okay. just not my <laughs> assessment. I mean, it's not that there wasn't any type of gains, but under... Um, Wilson's administration, he had uh, Palmer as his attorney general. Palmer's, one of his protégés was um, J. Edgar Hoover. And if you've ever heard of the Palmer raids, um, the significant fies, Jesus Christ, a period of history it, where, um, where they were essentially just raiding any type of unionists, uh, residents, beating the shit out of them, putting them in prison. And they passed multiple laws in order to give themselves the authority to do this, one of which was the Espionage Act. And so the entire uh, anarchist and socialist like syndicalist movements that were creating these gains for workers and were also the base of people who were supporting someone like Debs for president or in general espousing anti-war sentiments in an organized way, they were systematically destroyed um, by the uh, by the attorney general and the department of justice at that time. And I think that that's a fairly interesting parallel to bring up just in this conversation. If we are continuing to um, implicitly compare world war one to the, um, you know, the United States NATO war against Russia using Ukraine, because there is, um, you know, the United States and the ruling class generally globally have adapted to um pushback and you get a lot more pushback if your censorship and repression is out in the open and very obvious you know putting eugene debs in jail for a speech saying we shouldn't go to war um that kind of gets a lot more pushback than just 
demoting Eugene Debs in the algorithm so that nobody can ever see him online um, or read anything that he says. Uh, it's a lot more effective and a subtle form of censorship. But I think that we should be tying those things together. I think it would be interesting to do like a series of articles comparing the Espionage Act and the Palmer raids with the FBI raid just recently on the Uhuru African People's Socialist Party. Um, and also the, you know, really just since about, what, 2018, just a continual um, and swift ramp up of censorship. Also, just really quick, um, Fahim got bumped off again. The app has been pretty glitchy today, and I think it's because they just updated it. So I'm not sure why, but uh, anyways, that's my comments for now. I missed a lot of what was talked about with the Franco-Prussian War, um, so I won't I won't ask to backpedal, but... Um, no worries. I Maybe mean, we can follow up on that in later episodes if you want. I think uh, Peter was just referring to the comments uh, that Justin Amash made about the impeachment of Donald Trump and about the... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Pedro. That, that was in reference to... Uh, can, can you... Maybe just restate the, what Justin Amash's opinion was on that impeachment. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm going to reread uh, what uh, Justin uh, tweeted. Uh, he said, uh, the fact that the Espionage Act may be used against Trump does not magically make it good. This is because the, the kind of the liberals were cheering uh, against Trump. Oh, he was arrested. Good, good stuff. Uh, no, uh, and Justin said, OK, this is not good that he was arrested. When I mean the liberals, I mean the Democratic Party, they, they hate Trump. So, so, so then it continued, it, had the, uh, it has a terrible history of abuse. Government has employed it to avoid scrutiny and chill free speech and violates basic tenets of due process. Nobody should be cheerleading this law. Uh, my reply to Justin was, it's true that it's used in the past to punish free speech. And that is basically my my beef with this law, right? I mean, uh, they they actually I, I think they removed this part from the from the act uh, like uh, in the nineteen twenties, but uh, it still uh, can be applied to kind of somebody kind of that uh, that uh, tries to do something in this regard. So uh, it really goes down to the root of like what this bottom unity like for the lack of a better uh, phrase really is about right and we believe in objective truth like we believe in free speech like we don't care saying it um just like you're saying like just because donald trump said this thing like we all hate donald trump but that shouldn't mean that we should apply this sedition act to them and that's something i really respect about the the dissident left or the anti-authoritarian left, or the Jimmy Dore crowd, whatever you want to call them, there is still like a belief in free speech, which I think has been lost. And what I would call like the upper left uh, tanky, like Antifa crowd. Um, we believe that we all have a right to express our opinions. And we think that we should all be able to do that. Yes, exactly. Uh, my my main my main issue uh, politically, since you asked uh, in the beginning where where we come from, my main uh, uh, my main top issue is censorship. Uh, I'm, a, I'm I have been following the Twitter files issue, and uh, since Elon Musk took uh, charge of the Twitter and. Uh, 
uh, Elon Musk tweeted that he is a free speech absolutist, um, kind of uh, more or less on the same. It was uh, it was insane that the censorship that uh, that Twitter had. The basically, I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, okay. Uh, let me rephrase that. Uh, it's of course. Uh, uh, harassment and uh, stuff like that, uh, like doxing people, should not be allowed, of course. But uh, but uh, but Twitter was actually punishing polit people from from expressing their opinion, right? And uh, like started with Alex Jones. Uh, okay, Alex Jones is is an idiot. Uh, okay, but let it be an idiot. I mean. Uh, I mean, we are grown up, grown up adults, and uh, I can think for myself. I don't need uh, Twitter or the government to, to tell me uh, what I should uh, what what I should be able to to read uh, or see on the television. Uh, so that's my basic uh, my uh, my basic uh, my my actually only one top priority is free speech. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that you need to expose bad speech by having it out in the public, right? Like if people believe in things like white supremacy, racism, or just like generally like bad things, like if you just suppress that to the point where it's not in the public space, like those people aren't just going to disappear. They're going to go further underground and they're going to find like-minded people to do like evil things. So the best way to deal with that is just to have that out in the open. I don't know. Uh, Risto, like you also live in Portland. Uh, what is your experience with people and how they deal with free speech in Oregon? This is no longer like a speech space. Like, am I right? Well, so for instance, uh, just a couple of years ago, I was a student at Portland State University. And, uh, you know, the the whole social atmosphere around uh, suppression of dissenting opinions is it, it's very pervasive there and uh, so what would happen is uh, you might by uh, by some chance have a chance you know you get to talk to somebody in more depth than you had for uh, most of the time that you've known them and you might have known them for months or even years and find out that uh, really they have they have uh, many and strong disagreements with uh, uh, with the socially accepted stance on whatever issue, but they're they're afraid to talk about it, and they were nervous to talk to you about it until you let something slip that uh, showed that uh, you know maybe you had some slight disagreement as well. Uh, the number of times that that has happened to me and to uh, some of my friends is kind of disturbing because it, it tells you that uh, that this isn't just in my head. Other people are experiencing uh, the exact same thing. So it's uh, it, it's very real. It's maybe maybe worse on the PSU campus than it is around town, but uh, like you you kind of feel it on the sidewalks too, where. Um, uh, like you don't want to wear a shirt that says a certain slogan or even that might uh, I have a hat that I got from a job uh, the summer before Trump was elected. It happens to be red. It does not look like an, a, a MAGA hat, 
but it is that color. And I'm, I'm nervous to wear it out in my neighborhood in case people will make that association with me. Uh, even though I'm proud of the job that I did where I got that hat. I think that's a good point. I think people are really afraid to say what they feel these days. And I guess that goes back to what Pedro was talking about, about Julian Assange. She really is like the greatest hero of like our, our generation. I guess maybe he was, I mean, I'm a millennial. He was probably a Gen Xer, but it's really the biggest tragedy. And I guess something else we can probably uh, align on is just what a hero he was and how he really has no allies simply because he he doesn't have anybody in the Republican Party because, of course, he exposed all the war crimes and the WikiLeaks videos that happened in Iraq. And remember, I think that was like the moment that I became like just completely fully anti-war, like no holds barred, like no going back. Just like seeing the WikiLeaks video of the people in Iraq that were laughing about like bombing uh, the press basically in Iraq. And I remember like I was like tears came to my eyes to just realize how, how bad things really were. And then of course, like the fact that he exposed Hillary Clinton and her email scandal. And he just really had like no allegiance besides allegiance to the truth. And I think that's like whatever we want to call like our, our new Alliance, whether it be the rage against the war machine, everything we're doing there, or just, generally uh we should really just look at the truth i guess as a needle that we should all point to regardless of our ideological or like other opinions um yeah i think what i would love to talk about um especially because i'm from washington and i've been around a little bit of oregon um is there already a strategy in place that the at least the Mises Caucus or the Libertarian Party has expressed for beyond the protest and local organizing in pockets where you do have membership. Yeah, listen to your last episode. Um, my previous idea to listen to that was to funnel people that felt like more to our bent towards the Mises Caucus and to your bent towards the People's Party. But I understand that uh, you have some issues with the People's Party, so. Yeah, I, I feel like even if I didn't, uh, funneling people into the party apparatus of either uh, the Libertarian or the People's Party would be a pretty quick way to diffuse um, the possibility of building a, a coalition that is connected, well, dynamic, and putting pressure on the local levers of power. So the first person that comes to mind for me um in my area is actually Adam Smith. You both are probably familiar with him. He's uh, from the Democratic side, been the chair of the House Armed Services Committee for a number of years. He is a grown in a test tube in a Boeing facility with probably a, you know Lockheed supervision or whatever. And he um, just is a total worm. He has no ability to offer anything good to anybody in his district except for the Boeing workers. He does work with the, I think it's the machinists union people and others, and they're complacent because he hasn't allowed Boeing to ship all of their jobs to other states after getting a tax break from Washington state or Seattle or whatever. So my thinking would be um, Adam Smith's district is vast majority not um, 
Boeing employees. Most of his district, or at least big pockets of his district, are poor people who were uh, segregated out of Seattle or other parts of the, you know, other bigger urban centers in that area. And I think that he would be someone who it's easy to twist his arm. Um, I think that what would be interesting is to maybe team up just in that area with the uh, worker strike back movement that Socialist Alternative is launching because Seattle is one of the areas where, and you know, the, the sort of mid to South Puget Sound is where Socialist Alternative has a lot of membership. They're also certainly people who are on board with the demands of this type of a protest. I don't, I don't know if they'd be willing to do like a formal team up, but that's just something that came to mind. They have an organizing structure that's there. I know of numerous other groups that are in Adam Smith's district that could be just putting his tail between his legs at every single uh, public event or just every time he's even in the state and not in DC um, and be registering people as independent voters or um, whatever, just getting people involved into something in his district and say, if you don't agree to start drawing down the Pentagon budget, you're going to be gone. Um, and so there's also other strategies I would advise. Like, I don't know if you guys saw in Greece, because Greece has a huge uh, bloody history with other Nazi collaborators. The, some of the Greek unionists were blocking train loads of weaponry that was headed for Ukraine. So I'm, I'm most interested in thinking about these types of strategies because after this protest, I'm expecting the People's Party to pocket donations, uh, gain some you know, volunteers and organizers that they will shed very quickly in a matter of months. And so my, my hope is that we are able to harness the energy around this event because it is going to be put on by a number of uh, organizations who have different audiences and the speakers are actually pretty solid. Um, so I'm hoping to uh, redirect the energy away from just filling the membership roles of parties and into uh, sort of local spokes councils of people, just individuals or from different organizations who are willing to, you know, put a strategy into motion in their region. No, I appreciate that. Uh, firstly, I guess I'd say that Risto and I can definitely connect you with the or, or sorry, the Washington chapter of the Mises Caucus which is heavily involved in organizing this. And I think they definitely have a lot of people in Seattle that you could talk to um, the more local level, specifically on the Adam Schiff aspect. I mean, people have different opinions, I guess, in my organization, but uh, we believe in the radical decentralization of power. Uh, we want to basically decentralize power to the most lo local level possible. Uh, I definitely agree with the idea of just trying to twist the arm of local officials. I think that local is the place that we have the most pull, I guess, just because uh, we're closest to them. But, I mean, yeah, we have to work towards Cascadia, I guess, is the, is the idea. And just we believe in secession. We call it hashtag national divorce on Twitter, just because we think it's a more palatable way to say this. But we have to plan for the fact that the United States federal government, as we know it, is not really going to exist probably for the next, I don't know, like maybe 20 years. I guess that's like a conservative estimate, but we have to start thinking about like what the world's going to look like when we live in like much smaller countries, I think. I just would, I, I want to give Fahim a chance because I know he was cut out for a minute. Um, I would just say that, um, you know, in the 1970s, when, at, at the time when um, 
you know, Nixon had to make the decision to move off of the gold standard and negotiate the petrodollar settlement with Saudi Arabia. And then later, uh, under Jimmy Carter, when Zbigniew Brzezinski was taking the reins of uh, U.S. foreign policy, um, this was another period in which economy, the sort of diminishment of the U.S. Uh, you know, strength projection overseas um, was called into question. And I would say that um, if we want to diminish, if we want to eventually live in a future where we could envision a peaceful, um, you know, dissolute, uh, dissolution of the United States into more sensible regional nations of some sort, that's something we're going to have to work at really hard. I don't, I don't expect that it will happen on its own. Um, there have been multiple reimaginations and um, like flexible rebounds of capitalism and U.S. Uh, militarism throughout the 20th century. And I think we're in the middle of one as well in the 21st century since 2008, maybe a little earlier. So I would just say like, yeah, I'm definitely with you. It would be um, pretty excellent to see, uh, you know, a Cascadia that is not a part of the United States or Canada even. Um, but at the same time, like, um, I don't know, we should keep that for another episode, but my only pushback is that that is going to be a difficult project, not something that we just like uh, seize the moment um, because the U.S. is already going to collapse. I don't I don't see that as all is like. I think that's go a good ahead, point. Um, sorry, real quick, but Pedro, sorry. Um, uh, I want to go back Pedro. to the more yeah. local at local aspect you talked about. Uh, I didn't mean to diminish that. I just didn't have a great answer. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of local strategies we should, probably should employ, um, like the things you're talking about. And those are things we can discuss, like, further, like, in greater detail. And appreciate that that thought there. So we'll work closer together on that. Go, go ahead, Pedro. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that our people in the listeners that are interested are making a call. So if you please, if you could open the call, uh, the room for callers. And also we are kind of uh, almost one hour. I don't know about your time. Uh, I would like to, before you finish, I would like to wrap up what, what I said. Uh, that's all I have to say. Callers and wrap up. Thank you for that. Uh, I did not have that in public. Still getting used to this uh, this program here. But yeah, callers, if you have anything you want to comment on, please uh, feel free to jump in. I think we have another Peter. Good name. You win now. Go ahead, Peter. You might be on mute there. Well, we'll cut this out in post. Appreciate uh, that. Yes. Agenda items. Uh, no, Sorry, I was going to ask if you had more. Uh, the rest of the outline I had was regarding to the uh, the Germany-England relationship, which I think we'll probably just get into the next episode. Uh, but really appreciate everything everyone had to say about the continuing, um, should we call it the bottom unity movement? 
Is anyone opposed to that? I think we should call it a single issue coalition. I'm not necessarily sure I'm interested in like uh, beyond particular issues, a unity movement. I, I view it like uh, we're playing, I think I said it earlier, we're playing risk. Uh, neither of us are winning. Uh, let's, you know, team up for a moment, slash the Pentagon budget, do as much as we can to draw down the war machine. Uh, and then we can go back to bickering afterwards. But also, yeah, I was going to make room for Fahim. I guess no, just I on that, um, I think we have more in common than you realize, Andrew. I was listening to your last podcast, and you might have some ideas about libertarians that might not be true. So I would love to talk to you more about that. But go ahead, Fahim. No, I, I agree uh, with uh, you that there's a lot of commonality uh, between uh, the uh, two uh, groups. And uh, just by looking at the uh, panel that you, uh, that uh, uh, everybody has uh, put together for this uh, event on uh, February, and uh, I look at folks like David Swanson and Scott Horton and Midia Benjamin and Matthew Ho, that that's a pretty solid uh, panel that you guys uh, uh, have all uh, put to, uh, put there. So uh, let's. Uh, my uh, big thing on this is that I I I've seen one too many of these uh, events, and uh, it's not. Uh, it, it shouldn't be just a uh, momentary cathartic uh, event. It's like okay, where where do we go? Uh, from uh, there. And when you guys were talking about Adam Smith and all, most of the elections that I've seen uh, locally or even at the uh, state representative uh, or, or U.S. representative uh, levels, the uh, the margin isn't uh, too uh, big. And so part of me is that why not form a block on issues uh, that we agree uh, with and be a forceful enough of a, a block that can really affect uh, how uh, what we want uh, on specific uh, issues. So no, I'm really looking forward. Uh, I agree. To, uh, uh, Just for this. the record. So yeah. So, but anyway, so I've said my piece, and we've got a couple of callers. So let's uh, see. Hey guys. Yeah, we can hear you. Cool. Yeah, I really love this word uh, called the bottom unity coalition. <laughs> Never heard of it. Bottom unity. But uh, I really want to play like a devil's advocate for this episodes. For some reason, I think war sometimes can be very good. So for the First World War, the Soviet Union was born. Out of, uh, so that's the first communist regime, right? And then after the Second World War, uh, China was born. Right. And, uh, and then afterwards, all the wars, despite the fact that they're all brutal, they're all atro atrocious against uh, humanity, 
but it has uh, its uh, benefit. Actually, I want to go back to Civil War, which is not too far from that Franco, uh, English Franco War that uh, Petro talks about. Because the Civil War, blacks were freed from slavery. So that's kind of good too. So then after the Second World War, the Korean War, it actually is for the first time a non-white nation fought mano a mano without the no-fly zone protection with a, a white nation, the USA, as the as a, uh, air supremacy, hold the line, had a military draw, as Malcolm X called it, the rice eaters can fight also. That's a good thing too. And then the Vietnam War, in my opinion, is has also a great outcome. Because Vietnam War, for the fact that the mass casualty the white Americans suffered in Vietnam, supported civil rights claims domestically. So that's also good. So, and then fast forward to the Ukraine war currently, I do not necessarily see that as a bad thing from a historic perspective. Because here it is the West's claim that the Russians are not white enough to be considered Europeans. Despite the fact that Russians do believe they generally speaking a white nation. So with that split, it's almost like it will be the, th it's almost like the first world war and the second world war. This third world war can bring some good things for the global south. So I just want to play this uh, devil's advocates and see what you guys have to say. Thanks. Oh boy. Oh boy. Hey, uh, <laughs> so, I, I can't even. I, I'm, I'm provocative. I, I'm intentionally want to be Don't get me started, okay? Please. And, 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 <laughs> okay, yes. any comments, anybody? Oh, oh, by the way, I'm going to that uh, Against the War Machine rally in D.C. on February the 19th. I myself, personally, I'm going to go there. Okay, all right. I, I appreciate I think, that. Um, go ahead, Andrew. I think I would just say that um, without going into the historical examples where I could make similar points, the global south's ability to potentially have more financial sovereignty as a result of BRICS um, kind of exceeding above the the you know Western financial block, which is a potential. We don't know if that will be, be an outcome of this war. Um, I think that if the United States, um, if the people of the United States had sovereignty, we would not be. You know, I don't think for sure there would not be a majority of people voting or pushing in whatever other democratic way to just extort the entire rest of the world at maximum benefit to oligarchs in the United States and maximum harm done to those people. So in that sense, the benefits of the global South are not, they, it's not necessary to have this war for those to be realized. The United oh, States yeah, prosecuting. I yeah, I think we agree, but just, yeah, the finish the United States, the United States prosecuting, financial warfare, which they have done for several decades now, um, if that were to end, we could still, we could have seen these type of benefits for even development um, decades ago. 
like I said, like on the earlier points, it's hard to find even an anarcho-socialist that will defend the Soviet Union or like what happened like after World War II with China. Like we're talking about two of the most evil regimes in like world history that has like body counts of like hundreds of millions of people. Yeah, that's those numbers are garbage, but we don't need to defend every single thing that the Soviet Union or PRC have done to admit that they have accomplished really impressive feats. Yeah, basically, I was、uh, I think in my show I have mentioned when the white people fight each other like hell, the non-whites actually benefited. That goes back to slavery. That goes back to、uh, the the Jews in the Second World War.、Uh, that go back to the birth of the Soviet Union and the China after the Second World War. These are actually you know not too bad. Let the white people fight like hell because、uh, all three. Wars,、uh, you know, including this, you know, counting the Ukrainian war right now is the third world war. Is actually white nations, Christian nations, cannot get along with each other. They rather have a war. I guess that's one way to look at it, or we could look at people as people and not like racial groups and look at well the, well, the fact is that the actually Japan,、uh, the empire of Japan, tried to learn from the Western. The Europeans to be the colonizer, they are soundly defeated in the Second World War. So afterwards, no Asian countries, in my opinion, really want to dominate another one. Except, oh, it's always the Europeans wanted to dominating each other and dominating the non-Europeans. I don't mean to interrupt. I think what you're doing is you're representing nations as groups. And let me just read.、Uh, Just to around the here, the common theme of this series is that as a libertarian, I know you're not all libertarians, but some of us are. We should realize that nearly every actor well, on both sides of every conflict is a state, and states are evil organizations that seek to enrich their own wealth and power with no regard for the cannon fodder that are their wars. I think、yeah. we should realize that、uh, most of the time.、Um, These are literally just states trying to organize power, and they maybe they use different reasonings, like you're talking about, or reasonings that we are talking about now. But the people don't benefit from these wars.、Uh, most of us die, and like maybe there's like some social changes. But if we want to make actual cultural change, we need to do it peacefully and voluntarily. I appreciate all your comments. I know Amanda's uh, uh, is uh, behind me, so I'll, I'll hang up. Thank you so much. I just don't think we can get any sort of like meaningful peace through like violent conflict. But that's just me saying that there. But go ahead, Amanda. Peace through war. <laughs> <laughs> This is、uh, Orwell, two thousand twenty-three. Only a few years late. Hello, thank you for having me on. I, I regretfully missed the earlier part as I was out on. A walk because it was a beautiful day, and I forgot what time the show started. So, please forgive me if you address this. Are there going to be rallies? I'm 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 very interested in the Rage Against the War Machine rally that's happening, and I'm curious if you if there's going to be solidarity rallies in other cities, or if they're going to be if you're organizing any watch parties or anything like that. Great question. There should be. Andrew, do you have anything going on in Seattle? I know we haven't organized anything yet here in Portland. I know that the、uh, 
the vice chair of the Libertarian Party of Oregon will be in attendance at the Rage Against the War Machine event. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I don't know. I'm going to look that up right now. I, I'm actually not in Seattle for the past year, but I will go and figure that out. I think we should at least uh, organize whatever we can. Got uh, about three weeks almost, maybe a little bit less. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, do you know about the United National Coali- Anti-War Coalition? No, please fill us in. So the the uh, United National Anti-War Coalition, I discovered them, I don't know, last year. Um, they are a loose coalition of a bunch of groups that um, they just called for rallies across the country. I think there were rallies in like 40 cities, maybe over MLK week. And and they and so it's kind of a, a loose network of of organizations that seem like sometimes they're like at loggerheads with each other or they never talk. But but um, the rally that we did in Oakland on the 22nd, we had about 100 people come out. And I and I think that um, over that over that week of, of events, you know, everybody was sending in their videos and pictures to put on the website for UNAC so that, you know, people could see. Because it's hard when you're gathering at lots of places because the visual impact isn't as much, right? You get 100,000 people in 50 states. That's not the same as 100,000 people in one place. But I want to participate, too. (laughs) And I can't get to D.C. (laughs) Is there a way for I'm I'm still new to Colin. I, I love all the people I meet on Colin, but I don't know how, how to communicate with you all. Is there a way we can all connect and discuss these things? Well, you can also DM uh, uh, multiple people uh, in one uh, DM. Uh, that's one way to do it on Colin. Okay, I think that sounds uh, great. Um, uh, go ahead, Fim. No, I already said that. I, I just so, put my uh, I, I just put my email in the chat. You can reach me. You can reach me there at least first, and then we'll we can go from there. Connect wise, I'll put a link to the UNAC website too, so you can check it out. All right, thank you. I'm grabbing that right now. Um, all right, I'm going to take one more caller, Brady, and then I'm going to talk about uh, next steps here. Thank you for calling, Amanda. I appreciate that. We should definitely look into that. What's up, dudes? I heard y'all talking the other day about kind of uh, concern about leadership within the Libertarian Party, making sure that you guys get the right people in the right positions. And uh, one of the litmus tests that I've come up with is something called a political barbecue, where someone subjects themselves to a lie detector test, like an infrared lie detector test, while they're being asked a series of questions like every month. I thought that'd be a good uh, a good way to vet people for both candidates and positions within the party. And I was wondering, how flexible is leadership within the party? Like, what, what kind of decides leadership within the Libertarian Party? How do you guys come up with that? Um, for the Mises caucus specifically, uh, we, 
we don't believe in democracy. Uh, most of us are anarchists. So uh, we believe in individual rights and we believe in voluntary association. And we don't see democrat democracy as a voluntary system. But uh, we basically have a metrics test. Like you have to be uh, anti you have to be anti-Federal Reserve and central banking, and you have to be against a drug drug war. And that those are basically the three qualifications. And if you agree on those three, then we'll talk to you. Uh, the people that are elevated to the leadership positions in the Mises Caucus do it by merit, I guess. And it ju it's just voluntary. I mean, there's no there's no formal democratic process. Like, we don't want them in there. We'll just take them out. But I guess maybe this, maybe is, a good, this is a good... Sorry, go ahead, Brady. Did you have something else? It's interesting um, that you guys have managed to make it work like that so long. That's a shout out to anarchy. <laughs> it, it, it can work. Appreciate that. I know some people might disagree with like the different forms of anarchy, but I would encourage people to re read uh, Michael Malice's uh, Anarchist Handbook that talks of uh, anarchy, anarchy of all flags. Um, that was my first introduction to Michael Bonnikin, who uh, really just described the COVID tyranny like 200 years, well, I guess, I don't know, 150 years like before it ever happened. Um, and just a lot of great people in there, like specifically like left anarchists I'd never read before. And I really learned a lot of them. So obviously anarchy, obviously, anarchy or anarchism, or anarchism in general, like, oh, oh, owns its allegiance, owns its allegiance to the... To the the leftist that kind of invented it. So. Right on. Do you think that any of the libertarian leadership would be willing to subject themselves to questioning under an infrared lie detector test as like a kind of like a flex on Democrats who probably wouldn't do the same thing? I don't know. I mean, I would. I, but I, I mean, I would. I'm just the leadership of the Oregon caucus. But... Well, hey, man, if, if you want to make it happen, I think that would be a good, a good uh, example to set. Yeah, you brought this up last yeah, you brought episode. This up last episode. I was super against it before, but now I'm interested. Yeah, because an infrared camera can be attached to a cell phone, and it can be done relatively easy. They're not super expensive, and it kind of gives you like a cool predator vision, you know. And if you get a really good one, you can actually use it to detect lies in people. All right, well, let's let's make that happen. Uh, Andrew, did you have anything to say on that? You came off mute there for a second. All right. Well, oh, uh, lie detectors. No, I was just going to say there's an. I was just going to say there's a bad echo when both of you are unmuted. Yep. Good so call. So just I if you're not that. talking, better to. Appreciate that. All right. I think we're probably going to close out here. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, this episode took a ton of research to put together and didn't get through all I wanted to do. So I'm going to say next episode on the origins of World War One is going to be a Friday after next. But next Friday, I would love to have a conversation with uh, Andrew, Fahim, anyone else, Pedro that wants to be there. Obviously, my co-host Risto just to hash out some of the differences, I guess, between uh, the Libertarian Party and the, I guess, specifically the Mises Caucus and the alliance that you have and maybe discuss uh, some issues and really talk about, like, what can we do to form a, a true bottom unity movement that isn't just about this one issue? Um, really quick, sorry, I, I'm interested in that, but I wanted to mention, uh, Stupi asked a question, are you all willing to work with religious organizations on anti-war actions? 
I am. I mean, I'm an atheist myself, but I know a lot of people in the Oregon Mises Caucus are uh, religious. So, like, I, I don't really care what religion people follow as long as they believe in, like, uh, avoiding World War Three. Fahim, go ahead. If you had something on that. No, I, I was just uh, going to say, uh, no, let's uh, do uh, that. I'm all for uh, the idea of uh, all uh, talking uh, together. And uh, for the, uh, what's your topic specifically going to be uh, with regards to World War I uh, next, uh, in, uh, next, not next week, but the week after next? So week after next, we are going to talk about the relationship between uh, Germany and England, I guess, like obviously the royal bloodline relationship. And just, I don't know, like I, I get yeah. the feeling no, from no, no. reading. Go ahead. That's uh, fine. I, I was uh, going to uh, um, bolster up uh, on uh, that of basically two cousins fighting each other. Leave, leave us farmers alone. Yeah, no, that's great. And I guess we're also going to talk about the Germany-Russia relationship and I guess the, the myth of German militarism. And it got kind of how the UK really was the major military power of the time that just didn't want to lose their empire. And I guess uh, Belgian neutrality is up after that. Cool. Super. Well, uh, thanks for uh, having uh, us all. I really appreciate this. Uh, Peter, can I wrap up quickly? Uh, sure, go ahead. Uh, two minutes, okay? So for those that join later, I just want to quickly wrap up what I what I covered myself. I talked about Justin Amash, uh, the libertarian politician. I talked about Espionage Act, uh, Eugene Debs, uh, censorship, uh, Twitter, and that's pretty much what I talked about kind of my favorite issues so thank you very much peter and uh, regarding the comments from the other peter uh i'll leave that to another kind of off-site conversation because uh, if i start talking about that um uh, it won't be pretty so that's all i appreciate that pedro uh risto take us out with final thoughts Risto, you got anything? Uh, yeah, I'm still here. Um, sorry, I've been hit by a cat <laughs> during the last couple of things, so uh, I don't know. Super relevant final thoughts at the moment. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. Look, like it's something to say. Yeah, I was just gonna say um, I am definitely open to talking about and working on multiple other issues, but uh, I was not saying single issue coalition to preclude the possibility of working on other issues because I'm, I'm definitely familiar with libertarian ideology and I do understand where there are other crossovers. Uh, you probably heard me talking about other places we assumed we would have, you know, big overlap on our other uh, podcast episode last week. But yeah, thanks for having us on and We'll keep in contact. Um, I'm probably not going to reach out to you on Twitter. So if there's like a Mises Caucus um, email or if I can DM you on here and just give you my email, that's where I'd prefer to um, to talk about like local organizing. Yeah, please do. Um, you can DM me on here. I'll have access to that. And then I can give you the Oregon LPMC uh, address that we use. And again, this is the Oregon Libertarian Podcast, not necessarily directly affiliated with the Oregon LPMC, but 
that is kind of what has become. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, all callers, for joining. This has been another great episode of Foreign Policy Friday. It's better than I ever expected. Um, so yeah, next week, I think we're going to have just a general uh, powwow between what you'd call, I guess, the Mises Caucus and the anti-authoritarian left, the anti-imperialist left, the Jimmy Dore left, whatever you want to call yourself. But we love you, and we're friends now. So have a great night, everybody, and cheers. Thank you.